All right. So as you see here today, we are going to contemplate uh, the ascension of Jesus today, uh, mostly because, well, uh, in all the hustle and bustle, I forgot we were done with our book. <laughs> and uh, so I was preparing uh, a Bible study either, uh, I was starting to work on a Bible study for Galatians. Uh, I have one and I was updating it. And then I said, oh wait, I don't have a projector. So there are a couple of things going back and forth. So before I forget my audio, audio video guy, uh, I need to talk to you about getting a projector. Um, <laughs> So, uh, so what we will do, and this is good because I had some folks asking me questions about the ascension of Jesus and a couple things I said, uh, and for us to contemplate this, because it's not really something uh, I grew up knowing much about and celebrating, and it's still a very, um, it's a very good teaching, it's a very good topic, uh, but it, it, it touches on some very... Um, I don't want to call it scholastic, but some pretty uh, interesting and deep theological truths uh, that, that benefit us and are very good. So hopefully we'll be able to explore those a little bit today. Uh, for those of you who like listening to podcasts, and even if you don't, there's a couple podcasts I wanted to recommend that you listen to. Uh, they are well worth your time, and uh, they're, they're both on issues, etc. And the first one was from May 5th, and on May 5th, there was a program called, um, there was a, an episode uh, called, uh, I think it's The Modern Church and Tithing, and some surveys that were done post-COVID on churches and Christians and tithing, and uh, it had some interesting, uh, some interesting um, from the survey, some interesting results. And it includes Lutherans and Catholics and all these sorts of things. And the Lutherans in this podcast, he talks about how the Lutherans, they say they don't tithe. Whereas all the rest of Christianity talks about, you know, should Christians tithe, you know, like 90%. But in Lutheranism, it was like 30 to 40% said they sh we should tithe. And that's because Lutherans typically know what the word tithing means. <laughs> and it's Old Testament use. And so Reverend Heath Curtis is the one who talks about the results of the surveys on tithing and modern Christianity. And it's well worth your time to listen to it. I highly recommend it. Pastor Ke Reverend Heath Curtis on May 5th on uh, tithing. Uh, that, that's worth your time. Uh, we might even try to get Pastor Curtis to come to us and do some lessons on, or a Sunday or so on, on uh, stewardship and what it is. Uh, the second episode on issues, et cetera, that I think is worth your time uh, is by Pastor Wolfmuller. Surprise, surprise. Um, and the title of his episode is there's a reason every hit worship song sounds the same. <laughs> uh, and he talks about, uh, because he came out of this, this, uh, this world, and he talks about why church services look the way they do. And it's, it's like I said, I recommend this. Uh, if you've read his book, Has American Christianity Failed?, he touches on a number of topics in that book that he, he talks about here. So that was on May 24th. Uh, May 24th, there's a reason every hit worship song sounds the same. Uh, and, and I recommend those two uh, podcast episodes uh, for you to listen to. You can tell I was listening to podcasts on the plane <laughs> uh, on the way down to Argentina. It was a great trip. Thank you, everybody, for asking. And especially thank you for the time off to be able to go do it. Uh, it was a uh, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity so, uh, for some fun, so, so I do appreciate the time off. Okay, um, and it's funny today I say that the stole I'm wearing, it has the, you know, the dove, the Holy Spirit on the bottom, and I say this is my Argentinian stole now because it's got oh, yeah. dove on it because uh, that's what I hunted while I was down there, but anyway. 
So, all right, so on to uh, better things. Uh, the ascension of Jesus. As you see at the top there, those, those are the three readings for the ascension of Jesus for the church service. That's the pericope, the lectionary, uh, for uh, the ascension of Jesus. And we'll, we'll look at those. But as we contemplate this, I want to talk a little bit about this aspect of how in the Old Testament, um, God said something as an indication of our condition as humans before God. God said, no one can see me and what? Live. No one can see me and live. Um, mankind, which at the garden was able to be in the presence of God, right? In Genesis, what, what are we told that, that, that Adam was able to do in regards to the presence of God? Yeah, he was able to walk with God, right? In the cool of the day, we're told. Uh, he was able to be in God's presence. But then after that, after the fall, what happens to Adam and Eve? They're, they're cast out. They're thrown out. And it's from that point on that God, that man cannot be in the presence of God. Because if, if we are, it's certain death. Humanity, human beings cannot be in the presence of God unguarded, right? Uh, it cannot be in the, the pure sense of God. Moses asked to see God, right? Do you remember this story? Remember Moses asked to see God and what did God say? What did he do? He said, no, you, you can't see me, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Yeah, he was to go into a rock, you know, in the protection of a rock in a cave, which is interesting, right? I mean, rocks can, well, anyway. Um, so he goes into the cave and God says, I, I put my hand over you and I will pass by you and you can see what? You can see the backside. You can see the backside of God. You can see the side which, uh, uh, if Sam and Levi are here, uh, Mr. Tiff isn't here today. So uh, if, uh, maybe they'll come stumbling in here. We'll see. Ah, there they are. All right. We're just talking about you. How great of a student and how wonderful a school year you all had. Yeah, Sam said he was really sad that it's summer now. He, wants, he can't wait for, for school next year. Um, but in this story, it's quite interesting. You know, God says you can, I permit you to see my backside as I pass through. So you think of all these instances, the tent of meeting, you think of Moses having the veil over his face to meet the people after he was with God, but he didn't see God and his holiness. All throughout Old Testament, this is, this is the theme of humanity's presence with God. It cannot happen or else certain death will be there. The ascension of Christ is related to this in the sense that Jesus, if you know, we believe the scriptures and what they teach, if Jesus is true man, after Jesus dies on the cross, humanity now is able to what? Be in the presence of God because Jesus as true man ascends where? To the right hand of God. To being in the very most intimate, close presence of God himself. So this only works, though, if you believe Jesus is true man. If he's as much of a man as you and I are, this is one of the wonderful lessons. I'm not going to talk about it too much today, but this is one aspect of the ascension that remedies or sort of ties up this loose end in the Old Testament of why, why if humanity can't be in the presence of God, how are we going to be with him for eternity? How am I going to be able to be? You see, that's the point is God wants to fully restore our fellowship with him back to pre-fall times. And so it takes the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, his ascension, his descension into hell, and then his ascension to the right hand of God to teach us that humanity can now be in the presence of God because Jesus is still truly man. Now that God has become flesh, has become true man in Jesus, God is now man in Christ Jesus for eternity. This is one aspect of God that has actually changed. That previously, 
Jesus, before he was born, was not in the flesh. He was just Jesus. He was spirit. But then when he is born at the incarnation, that changes humanity forever. And then when he accomplishes what he does on the cross, this now gives us access to God, right? What happened to the curtain? It was torn, right? That which protected us from God, if you will, ripped. So all these things are tying up this this sort of idea that man cannot see God and live. And if you think about it, God protected Moses where? In the rock. And what is Jesus? The rock, right? And Paul touches on this other aspect of of the rock, right? That that Jesus, if you will, is sort of our, he's not our, he's our protection, I guess you could say, from God's wrath. But, but he, is, he is our rock, our, our uh, rock of ages, what? Cleft for me, right? You're Moses. <laughs> you're, you're in the rock. You're in the cave. And God has, by the work of Jesus Christ, now we are able to be in the presence of God as Jesus is now fully human in the presence of God in his, in, at the right hand. So that's one aspect of the ascension the, the, and it's a pretty, I mean, this is a, this is a pretty important point that can sometimes get looked over that Jesus is still true man. He is in the presence of God. He is at the right hand of God. Um, he is true man. Now, why is this important? It's not just some esoteric point. It's important for the point I just made that we will be truly human in the resurrection Just as human as you are now, you will have this body. You are body and soul. Your body's eternal. Your soul is eternal. The soul being eternal is kind of easy, right? But your body is also eternal. And so with Jesus being in the presence of God at the right hand of God, this tells us also that our humanity has been rescued. That aspect of you that is human, your personalities, who you are, All of that is preserved by Jesus' death. And not only is it preserved, but it's also cleansed. That all of that, your identity, that that which makes you human, all of that has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. So we will be raised body and soul to be with Jesus and God forever. We're not going to be some spirits floating around. So another, the other reason why this is important, that Jesus is truly man and still at the right hand of God, is because this is part of the reason why some churches claim that Jesus can't be present with us in the Lord's Supper. As they say, if Jesus is still fully man, one of the intrinsic characteristics of being human is that you can only be in one place at one time. Right? And so they say then that if Jesus is truly human, then he can't be in the Lord's Supper. This is not a difficult problem because Jesus now, now that he is exalted to the right hand of God, St. Paul says Jesus has power over all things. Jesus, when he says he is with us in his body and blood, he can do that. It wasn't like he made a mistake in the words of institution and said, oh, I'm with, I'm with the disciples here, but once I go up to the right hand of God, I can't be with you. You see, the problem that a lot of churches and and folks have with the real presence of Jesus in the body and blood and the bread and wine is because he's ascended and human. But we say, no, that's not a problem because now Jesus is fully using his divinity to be with us, to give us the benefits of his work on the cross and resurrection. So whereas some would say the ascension is kind of a well, now Jesus can't be with us. He's kind of trapped up in heaven, so he can't be in the, in the sacrament. No, Jesus would not ascend if that meant his presence with us is somehow less. But his ascension means his presence with us is even better than, when, than before he was crucified. So this is, this is kind of a, a beautiful thing that, that the disciples and the people who follow Jesus, 
that we have a more intimate and a closer relationship to Jesus than even they did. But that only comes by faith in believing and trusting the words of Jesus. That Jesus says some pretty remarkable things. Lo, I am with you always. I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. This is my body. This is my blood. I am with you. This is the mode in which I am now with you, which is not worse than when I was with the people walking around. I mean, that would kind of stink, right? <laughs> I know that's kind of my temptation. It's like, golly, I just wish Jesus were standing right here and I could touch and feel him and hug him and touch his feet, right? Like Mary did and, and all this stuff and grab onto him. But Jesus says, no, no, no. My presence with you now uh, is even better. But the full consummation of his presence we will see in the resurrection. And that's what we will have for eternity. And that's going to be pretty great. So those couple of quick notes about the ascension before we get into our, our study and our text of it. Um, the ascension of Jesus, there hits up. It's a major teaching. It's got a lot of doctrines and teachings connected with it, and they're all good. Uh, it's not as if Jesus' ascension were like, darn, he's not here anymore. You know, no, it's, it's even better because it's by faith. And faith uh, is never, it's never a disappointment. It's never a, a letdown. It's always, it's always the best. Okay, so let's start in Acts chapter 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts 1, 1 to 11. And this, we have this reading at the beginning of Acts for the ascension of Jesus because it sets the stage for what Luke is going to say in his 24th chapter of the gospel according to St. Luke. Because remember, Luke wrote Acts and the, uh, the book of Luke. Uh, and Luke, of course, we are told was a physician. So he was very detail-oriented. Um, you know, uh, uh, he, he wanted to record these things. You remember um, uh, Luke has some, some great things in his gospel. And so he starts off very plain here. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Will somebody read that nice and clear for me? And his name is Theophilus, if you're afraid of pronouncing it. Theophilus. So verse 1, uh, somebody read through 11, please. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up and after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Okay, so right there you see Luke knows he's picking up at, from the ending of the gospel of Luke, right? Do you see where he mentions the ascension? Mm -hmm. He was taken up. So this Luke is playing this out and saying, look, his, his not being here is not a weakness. It's going to be a strength, okay? All right, keep going, please. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay, so that's talking about what? Baptism. Well, I mean, yes, but no. Okay. Nice try. <laughs> Baptism is never a bad answer. Yes, I heard it. Pentecost. So you can see here... Um, that, that Luke is saying, okay, Pentecost, after, after, the, after Jesus ascends, then the Holy Spirit will come. And then after Pentecost, Judgment Day can come any moment. After Pentecost, we are in the last days. We are in, we are in if you will, the thousand-year reign of Christ. Because it's called the thousand-year reign of Christ. This is what is talked about in Revelation. Because now when Jesus ascends into heaven and sends the Holy Spirit... He is reigning. There is nowhere that you can go where you are outside the reign of Christ and his forgiveness. That's why in Revelation, it's called the thousand-year reign of Christ. A thousand means complete and perfect, right? Because 10 is a godly number. 10 is a godly number of complete in the Ten Commandments. 
to the third power, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So a thousand is the perfection of God. And so this is why in Revelation, after Pentecost, after God has done everything he said he would and has done everything necessary for our salvation, the devil cannot take you from God. The devil cannot attack the gospel and steal it away from the church. This shows Jesus is reigning, his thousand-year reign. So that begins after Pentecost, okay? just to make a, a, a revelation connection. But yes, here he's specifically talking about Pentecost. Okay, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee. Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Okay. Um, you see the, um, of course here they're asking Jesus, right? They think now, of course the disciples are mistaken. They think now is the time, right? That Pentecost hasn't happened. They still aren't listening to Jesus. And they're saying, now are you going to restore the kingdom? Now are we going to have all this? Now is it? And Jesus says, well, no. Um, the Father has fixed by his own authority, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. And you will be my what? Witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem. And? All, all the ends of the earth. So Luke is saying, look, it's starting here from Jerusalem, right? And what, is, what was in Jerusalem? the crucifixion of Jesus, his death and resurrection. So here we kind of see Luke sort of, uh, Jesus um, saying, look, it, it's going to be from my cross. The, the work that I did here in Jerusalem, it's going to go out to all the world and you will be my witnesses. What does the word, does anybody remember the Greek word for witness? Not apostle. Martyr. That's right. Jesus says here, you will be my martyrs. Thanks, Jesus. <laughs> Can't wait for this to happen. Uh, we all get to go martyring. But you see the disciples and they're looking up. Let's see. Let's see how they receive Jesus now disappearing from their sight. And Jesus saying, you're going to be my martyrs. All right. Verse 12. Somebody else read verses uh, 12 through 14. Okay, thank you. So we see now, now they are not looking for Jesus up in the clouds, right? But what are they doing? They're gathering together as God's people um, because they are now uh, are trusting the words that Jesus said. They know that his ascension, his going to the right hand of God means that Jesus is with them in this way uh, and that the Holy Spirit uh, is, is yet, yet to come, Pentecost. Now this, of course, this text right here, uh, has one of my favorite jokes in it. <laughs> the response for my jokes now is now groaning. I gotta. I need some new material, right? But you see in verse 14, now you can use this joke. You don't have to credit me for it because I didn't make it up. But uh, you can see here that Jesus is a fan of Hondas, right? Because all the disciples were in one accord. <laughs> What? 
Well, you come up with a better one. <laughs> All right, very good. <clears throat> so that's the, uh, that's the first reading, right? Uh, um, the second reading, let's go to Ephesians 1. Ephesians chapter 1, 15 to 23. Of course, this now is St. Paul uh, writing, to the, writing a sermon, writing to the church in Ephesus. Um, first, uh, Ephesians 1, 15 to 23. If someone would read, read that for me. Just 15 through the end of the chapter. Please, nice and loud. Okay, so here we have St. Paul teaching us what it means that Jesus disappeared from their sight and he ascended into heaven. What does that mean? He is, right, right after this, he says, when Christ, uh, he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, right? Who is the he there? The Father. So when we ask who raised Jesus from the dead, the Bible says the Father, the Spirit, and Jesus raised himself from the dead. So the whole Trinity was involved in the resurrection of Christ. This is uh, an interesting point that the scripture, it doesn't just say Jesus raised himself. It doesn't just say the Father raised him, but it says the whole Trinity is involved in these salvific acts uh, for us. And then what did he say he did? He raised him from the dead and then seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places what does that mean? That means he's, he rules over all authorities, all powers, dominions. He's above every name, not only now, but for the age to come. He's put all things under his feet, gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him. So this is, this is part of the reason why we say, even though Jesus is still truly man, he is not limited by physics. He is not limited by the laws that govern nature. Laws govern nature, not God. So if Jesus, who's still fully human, says, I am at the right hand of God, I am also in the, in the wine and bread, if he says he can do that, who are we to disagree So here we see St. Paul teaching us that now that Jesus has ascended, he has power over over everything. There's nothing. He, he is not limited anymore. He does not limit himself. He doesn't limit his wisdom. He doesn't limit his knowledge. Uh, he is fully using his divinity for our benefit. Okay. All right. Finally, then uh, let's go back. Are, any questions so far on this? Okay. Luke 24. Now we go back to Luke. This is great. I love this. Luke 24, and we're going to start in verse 44. All right, if somebody would read uh, verses 44 through 53. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. 
getting from Jerusalem. Okay, I'm going to stop you right there because this verse that she just read, this is one of our foundational verses for what we, we believe is a pastor's job. That when you go listen to a sermon, this should be the content, right? What does Jesus tell them to do? What does Jesus tell them to say? Repentance and forgiveness of sins should what? Be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. So you see the content there, right? Uh, Repentance, which if we wanted to use another word for that, we could call it the law, right? Because that's what the Holy Spirit, he uses the law to teach us repentance. And then what's the second aspect? The gospel, the forgiveness of sins. So this verse You know, these are Jesus's instructions about what should be preached. You know, I I, I could, you know, any Sunday I can stand up there and tell you, you know, all kinds of, you know, not not that my life is that interesting, but, you know, like today, I could have just stood up there in the pulpit and talked to you about my trip to Argentina. And, and And it could be interesting, maybe. I mean, a lot of you are asking about it, which I appreciate and is great, but my job is not to teach and talk to you about my adventures or things that I do. Um, We believe that pastors have a specific charge to preach law and gospel because these are the means by which the Holy Spirit works. Um, And if you hear the law and gospel taught rightly, you know that the pastor is doing what St. Paul tells Timothy, to rightly divide the word of God. Divide the word of God, law and gospel. Use it rightly. Teach it rightly. So here we see Jesus beginning to to teach and say what you are to do. Preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all nations. Okay? Uh, Continue. Verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. Ah, wait. No. See, I don't want that part. (laughs) Preaching and forgiveness of sins would be great, but you will be martyrs of these things. Eh, maybe we can just cut that verse out. Yeah, well, of course, he's talking about his disciples, but anybody who proclaims Jesus' name, uh, you are a witness. You should be ready to die. Verse 49, please keep going. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Okay. All right. So to our paper today, um, there I have the text from Ephesians 1. And since we read that, I'll begin the paragraph that says on May 18th. On May 18th, 2023, the church remembers the day that Christ ascended into heaven. We confess this important teaching when we say the Apostles' Creed. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We confess this with the same excitement and fervor as we do the Christian line in the Creed, Christmas line in the Creed, born of the Virgin Mary. The ascension of Christ into heaven is when he visually departed from his disciples, and this teaching is a very good thing for us. It is the beginning of summer, and that means traveling and seeing people we maybe haven't seen in a long time. This also means we must again eventually say goodbye to those we love. We do not like to leave our friends when it comes time to part. Jesus warned the disciples that he would leave them a little while and the disciples would be sad. But Jesus said, but I will return to you in a short while. This was Jesus speaking on Monday, Thursday night to his disciples, speaking about his death and resurrection. The disciples were very sad that Jesus had to leave their presence. But Jesus' departure, his exodus, was necessary to take away our sins so that we could be with him forever in eternal life. The disciples did not like the idea of Jesus leaving. When Jesus was raised from the dead, it seems Mary grasped at Jesus because she was overcome with joy to see her Lord. She did not want to let Jesus go again, right? She did not want to depart from his presence. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus appeared to the disciples and it looked as if they were to keep, that he were to keep going but they wanted him to stay with him. They begged him, stay with us, for the evening is at hand and the day is far past. After Jesus broke bread with them, their eyes were opened, and then he left them. Jesus' presence is a calming presence. 
Jesus's presence is a wonderful thought, but before his ascension, he couldn't be in all places at one time. He is, after all, true man, and man has a local presence. You can't be with your family in San Antonio and your family in Dallas at the same time. However, the ascension of Jesus teaches us something that baffles our minds. Since Jesus has ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, he can be wherever he, wherever he wants, whenever he wants. Since Jesus was raised from the dead in the flesh, he can now be present everywhere with us. It is curious to note how the disciples who never wanted Jesus to leave them, when Jesus did finally ascend into heaven, the disciples were not sad. They rejoiced that Jesus had ascended. This passage that we just read in Luke 24, 51, while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Why did they rejoice this time when Jesus was leaving them? Because Jesus' ascension meant that he is no longer limited by space and time. Jesus' flesh and blood body is not limited to a local presence like we are. Jesus' human body is now fully using his divinity. Jesus can now be on our altar, flesh and blood, and every altar who celebrates the Lord's Supper. Jesus is now closer to us than he ever was when he was not fully exalted. Imagine that. In defeating death and sin, Jesus is victorious over all things, even physics. Sometimes it may seem as if Christ is not with us, chaos in the world and in our own lives. The Christian faith is no longer seen as a reasonable faith. It can sometimes appear as though Christ has gone from us, but we are called to walk by faith and not by sight. Jesus never promises us we will not face refinement and suffering. Quite the opposite, really. In fact, your suffering is a sign that Jesus is trustworthy. Christ takes it even further, though. We will see suffering, but we will also see in the end how our suffering was good for us. That's hard to see right now, but Christ makes some pretty big promises for you to believe in so that we would see his glory. The ascension of Christ is an article of the Christian faith. It's something that we believe because it doesn't make sense to our logic and science. You cannot test the promises of Christ in a laboratory. Jesus now promises us, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The ascension of Christ teaches us that Jesus isn't just an idea that stays with us or some hyper-spiritual experience he wants us to draw on. Jesus' ascension points us to his word and sacraments for his presence. This is a true promise for you whose sins would separate us from God for eternity. But because God loves the world, he sent Jesus to be crucified, dead and buried. He was raised for us and ascended into heaven to guarantee us he will never leave us. Our sins would separate us from God and from one another. But Christ's ascension to the right hand of God shows us that mankind, Jesus still being fully man, is able again to be in the presence of God. Faith in Christ's death and resurrection for our sins and God's forgiveness is what again joins us to God. By faith, we hold on to Christ. Better yet, by his blessed forgiveness given in word and sacrament, Christ holds on to you and promises to never let you go. So it is interesting how throughout the Gospels, you know, especially after Easter, the disciples did not want to let Jesus go. They said, no, stay with us. Mary grabbed onto him because they saw what happened the first time they let go of Jesus. They saw him tortured, they saw him crucified, and even Peter betrayed him. They all left him. Zechariah, the prophet, foretold this. He said, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. <clears throat> so you can imagine how they felt after they saw Jesus being that Easter Sunday. He said, I ain't doing this again. I'm not letting go. But then, you know, Jesus tells Mary, he says, let go of me. You know, you can't, don't grab onto me. Uh, he tells Thomas, which is interesting, but he does tell Thomas to grab onto him, to feel him. Curious. Jesus then finds them on the beach as they're fishing that Easter, that Easter, uh, that post-Easter time. And they see Jesus and they come to him and he's, he's cooking fish on the beach. And to show them that he isn't a ghost, that he's still man, what does he do? He eats the fish. 
He says, look, I'm still a man. I'm eating fish. You know, a spirit doesn't eat, right? Right? That Ghostbusters, right? You remember the first Ghostbusters back when it was good, right? And Slimer, Slimy, what's his name? Is it Slimer? Slimer, yeah. Yeah, my cousin just, he loved Slimer back, back in the day. And, uh, you know, Slimer's sitting there eating all that food. And what's it doing? Just going right through him and falling on the floor. He's like, Arr! you know, Jesus, he eats the fish. And he says, look, I'm still a man. And uh, I'm, I'm still a man and I'm here for you. And so then when Jesus ascends, it, it really strikes me. It's one of my favorite things. The disciples don't say, don't leave us. They aren't sad that he ascends to the right hand of God. But what does it say they, they do? They return to Jerusalem with what? Joy. With joy. It's a strength of the Christian faith that Jesus is not physically present, which is the opposite of what we're tempted to think. It turns it upside down on its head. But like I said, this requires faith. It is offensive if you don't have faith, right? Uh, what, this, this year I heard, um, it, it was a news story or a meme or something like that. Maybe it was from the past, but I just remember seeing it this, after this Easter, during the Easter season. There was somebody bragging about how, oh, we have the, we have the tomb of our great emperors, right, who they think were divine, and then they talk about having the tomb of their, you know, the, all these religions, you know, the tombs of their great leaders, their prophets and whatnot. And they say, Christianity can't show us the tomb of Jesus, right? As if that's a bad thing. And we say, exactly. There is no tomb. You show us a body and we'll talk. But right now, Jesus is raised and his ascension after you learn the teachings of the scriptures, after you learn and are reminded of what Christ says, you see that the ascension, Jesus not being physically present with us in the way in which he was, is actually something we should brag about. Ha! Huh, I don't get, I don't see Jesus. <laughs> when, you're, when your days are hard and the times are tough and you just wish Jesus was right there, oh, ye of little faith. Pretty cool. So uh, this, is, this is why the church has celebrated the Ascension as a major feast. A ma I don't know if I want to call it a feast. A major teaching. Yeah, we'll call it a feast. Uh, a major doctrine and something that is in the creed, right? The church has confessed this right alongside Christmas, right alongside Easter, right alongside Pentecost, the Ascension of Christ. Because when we celebrate this and when we gather together, we are saying Everything that Jesus said has come true. He is present. He is here with us. Uh, there is nothing that can keep our God from us. Uh, he is not dead, but he is alive. So it's, it's really a beautiful and wonderful encouragement. And uh, that's why I thought it would be worth our time to consider today, since it was May 18th. Uh, that, you know, it's always, you know, it's always 40 days after Easter. And then 10 days later now, we celebrate Pentecost, um, the 50 days, because that's the order in which it, it happened. We actually follow the, the chronology uh, of this. Any questions or, or any thoughts? Yes. <laughs> I didn't, I'm not laughing. I'm laughing, laughing with you. What do they say? Laughing with you. There you go. You had to one up me. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So much for our theological jokes. Yeah. Yeah. Way to go. I will not repeat that one, Anna. Very good. <laughs> All right. Any other thoughts? Uh, yes, Jessica. Right. Outline. Yeah. But he really he linked it to the teaching on the ascension of Christ and the supremacy of Christ. 
But my question, too, is also, you know, we have our hope in the ascension, especially as we take communion and we continue to sin and suffer and witness to the goodness of God. But also, does it also connect to the, as a church militant, but also the church triumphant? Because that's really the ultimate hope and goal. And I think as we think about evil or suffering or even being a witness, you know, the ultimate goal is being with him in fullness. I mean, is that, yeah. you know, merging those two? Because I'm still learning. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We say the church militant. Uh, I mean, the the church is. If if you want to say right now, the church is militant. The church is victorious. We have the victory. The reason why we make a distinction between the church militant and the church triumphant uh, is because we are still fighting our our own battles. Right? We are still fighting against the evil and principalities of this world. A spiritual battle. So yeah, Jesus has the victory. It has been won, um, but the devil is not content to let us have that victory. And he will do everything he can. He cannot convince God to go back on his word with us. The devil was thrown out of heaven. God doesn't hear any of the accusations of the devil. It is we who can still, who still give ear to the devil because we are, we have, we ourselves are not fully, uh, we are not, we have not run our race. So we are, the devil is, that's how wicked. And this just makes me dislike the devil all the more is he knows the victory is won, but he hates God and us so much. He just wants to pick us off. He, he knows his, his time is short and that's how much he hates us. He just, he knows he's lost. Uh, it's kind of like when you watch a, 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 a game, an athletic game or football, and the team, you know, it get, a team is getting whipped, and I mean, everybody can see they're losing, and then they get chippy, as we say, right? And that is really pathetic, right? Everybody kind of groans, oh, they didn't have to do that. Bad sportsmanship or whatever, it's really low. But that's really why we call it now the church militant, is because we're working against the devil who's trying, to, he's it's really, really ugly. He's lost and he just wants to peel off, peel us off because he hates us. He doesn't want us to enjoy the peace of not having to fight this battle. Um, he wants you to be miserable and to suffer. And it's not even you. He doesn't even look at you as a person, as an individual. He, he only hates you because you belong to God. And you're just a means, he thinks, to to upset God. And that's, that's pretty bad. So this is why, you know, uh, um, senseless violence like this, I think it's very good to consider this and to keep that in the forefront of our mind. Um, it really is senseless violence. The devil has no purpose uh, at random violence. That's why it's so bad and it hurts so much. It's because there's no purpose because uh, wickedness doesn't even consider us a person, Not, nothing even worthy of contemplation. Um, so we call it now the church militant because we are still running our race. The church triumphant, you've made it, you've finished it, and that we will all be in the church triumphant when Jesus returns. Does that answer yeah. kind of the question? And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Right, yeah. But yet it could pull people away from God because people say, my gosh, if this kind of thing happens, that end old, you know, ages old question of how can there be a God and this right. kind of stuff happens. And so we, I think it serves to weaken people's, well, first off, they may not have faith in the first place or just to pull people to keep separating people from God and not to be able to allow mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit to work with them yeah. because they say, oh my gosh, I could never possibly believe in God who would let this happen. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that absolutely is what the devil is trying to do with it. That is, yeah, that, that is his purpose, I guess, if we wanted to say he has a purpose. But even then, you know, our favorite Bible passage, Romans 8, 28, God says then, uh, yeah, I'm saying this in agreement with you. Um, God says he will even use the devil's senseless violence for the good of those who believe. Yeah, for those, for those who, yeah, believe. For those who believe. For the people who don't. Right. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And, and the Holy Spirit, and that's what the Holy Spirit does. And, you know, that's what's interesting about these tragedies is, and, and you do hear this, and this is one aspect, I think, of, of, of the image of God that even our unbelieving world grabs onto and they like. Because what do they, what news stories after this tragedy, what, what do they then start to report or try to? They try to tell all the good stories. They try to say, oh, but this was used for good in some way, right? They're not quite ready to say that it was God, but they, they, they give up credit to what? The human spirit, that we can turn a tragedy into something good. The reason we like that so much is because there is within us, you know, this fundamental knowledge of God that even some, there must be, that this world cannot be pointless. This world, there must be something greater. And that is the unbeliever's quandary. And the Holy Spirit will use these things and good will come of it. Uh, and the number of people at, you know, after a tragedy or whatever, that, that it starts to get people's attention. They say, golly, I was just standing at that mall yesterday. I was just right there. And perhaps maybe that gets them to contemplate the deeper things of life and to perhaps listen to that, that, that image of God that they have and they've been trying to suppress for so long. The Holy Spirit does not give up. Um, yeah. But the devil will use it to pull people away. Yep, he will. Any other questions or comments? Okay, very good. Um, uh, let's, close with, let's close with prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your wisdom, you brought your son Jesus to your right hand. And being there, showing us that he can be with us everywhere, that he is indeed ruler and, and the authority over all things. Grant us not to lose hope, even in the face of tragedy, but also in the face of triumphs. Let us not become conceited, Lord. Uh, grant us that we would remember to give you thanks for all things. As unworthy as we are, your mercy knows no bounds. Continue to teach us and let us rejoice and treasure the ascension of Christ as the treasure that it is. Prepare us now for uh, Pentecost, for the readings and, and the recollection of your faithfulness in all times, not only on the day of Pentecost, but also even now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.